It's good to see you this morning. We come in our study of God's Word to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. So John 20, looking at the first 10 verses together this morning. Jesus has now suffered under Pontius Pilate. He has been crucified, died, and was buried. Uh, That all finishes by Friday night, if we're thinking in terms of the way that we count our days. Uh, Following that, there's an entire day that we hear nothing about. Uh, There's Sabbath day that takes place then on Saturday. The only thing that we hear comes from Luke's gospel, which just tells us that they then rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So it's a day without activity. It's a day in which Jesus is laying dead in the tomb, and his disciples, I cannot imagine what that day was like for them. Uh, And John doesn't tell us. Uh, John moves us right away now to the following day, to a Sunday morning. And what we're going to read here in just a moment, it it ought to stand out to you what an incredibly visual description this is that we receive. It reminds us that we're hearing about this, in this case, from one who was there, one who's playing a part in these events himself. Uh, We're going to see, I think, that in these 10 verses, what we're being given is really a showcase of a dawning. You think of when the sun comes up and the way that that light very slowly and step by step comes to us and reveals. Uh, As the sun is coming up that morning, this is what we're finding in the case of Jesus' followers. Uh, I used the word dawn in the title of the sermon. You'll hear us use it several times this morning, because it's been striking to me how sequentially increasing it is, the realization that they receive from these events. Uh, Let's read together then the first 10 verses so we see what we're coming to. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 20, verses 1 to 10. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The way that John relates this to us is surprising to many, because... 
of, out of all of the places, and it's, this is not an uncommon thing, um, where we find distinctions of detail and uh, what is chosen to be included among the four Gospels, of all of them, this is one of the places where we find the greatest amount of difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and John here gets specific in the picture that he presents of the events in a particular way, as they all do, that chooses to leave out some details and focus on others. Uh, th this is a very noticeable instance of that. If you were to lay out in front of you all four of the gospel accounts of this morning, it would stand out to you how differently they come across. In fact, if, if you look into the issue, you find that uh, for some people, much is made of the differences in the four accounts. And it can be confusing. So I, I, it's not something I want us to dwell on very long, but I did want us to begin by at least thinking about how that works here and giving a quick description of these differences. And really, when you look at them, they boil down to a couple of things that need to be understood. One is, what I trust we all understand, that the different authors are writing with particular purposes in mind, and they are choosing their uh, details accordingly. Uh, each author is ignoring certain aspects of the story in order to give a clear account. Now, that's especially true in the cases like we come to this morning, which was almost certainly the most frenzied day that any of these people had in their entire life as they come to realize that the tomb is empty and there are individuals and groups running to and fro, leaving the tomb, coming back. Where is he? This is a very hectic set of hours. And if you're one who is going to give an account of it written down, you're going to have to choose a particular line of those events and just follow it in order to be coherent. Uh, in particular, the authors are doing that regarding the women who came to the tomb and the angels that they met there. That's the place where, where you find these differences standing out, is in the discussions and conversations between the women who came to the tomb and the angels. Uh, the second thing to notice is regarding those conversations. Well, what is difficult is that when you look at, for example, when you look at Matthew and Mark, the women arrive at the tomb, they enter the tomb, and they are addressed by an angel. Is that what we just read in John here? That's not the line of description given to us in John. But if you simply factor in, for example, it's very helpful to, to, to think through this. Factor in the possibility that these women, Mary Magdalene and the others who were with her, we know there were several of them, factor in the notion that they arrive at the tomb, they see the stone rolled away, and Mary Magdalene turns around and runs back to the disciples to tell them while the other women remain there. Factor something like that in, and what you suddenly realize is that you're going to immediately have two separate storylines going on. And which one are they going to tell us about? Both, one or the other. They have to make a decision. If we understand that there are multiple storylines happening, multiple lines of, of action taking place at once, then everything falls well into place as we read all four of the accounts. When we're told different aspects of the details of an account by different testimonies, like we have here, the fact is that we're actually having confirmed for us the legitimacy of the accounts of eyewitness testimony. Because the only time that you don't have that kind of thing, the only time that you don't have such differences in what's emphasized 
and in what details are chosen, what perspective it's given to us in, is in the case of pre-planned conspiracies. That's the place where you will find multiple people giving identical details from an identical viewpoint when they have gotten together and planned out their story that they're going to tell. So what we have in the Gospels, in this case and in many others, is a, a very obvious, genuine accounting of first-hand witness testimony from a variety of perspectives. What John does is to retell the events of this morning by focusing on the person of Mary Magdalene. Like I said, we know from the Synoptic Gospels that she was not the only, one, the only woman who was coming to the tomb early that morning. Uh, you might have noticed, though, in what we read, if you look at verse 2, John mentions Mary saying to them, quote, we do not know where they have laid him. It's not as if he's trying to hide the fact that other women were there with her. He's simply focusing on the one who came and spoke to him and to Peter. It's exactly the same thing that Matthew and Mark do from the other direction regarding the angels. Matthew and Mark simply describe the one angel who spoke to the women instead of choosing to emphasize that there were actually two angels there at, uh, at the tomb, like John tells us. So we see this happening from both directions. As you can imagine, work has been done to look at the details of all four Gospels at once and to suggest how these would have actually happened chronologically. That kind of thing can be helpful if it interests you. Uh, and we have put one such retelling uh, in a sheet on the back table, if you would like to grab that after the service and just have a sense of how the different accounts and the details that they give us would have fit together, uh, that may be helpful to you. Uh, but having provided that and having talked about those things quickly this morning, my suggestion is that we then just lay that aside and let's just focus on what it is that John is telling us about this morning, that the Holy Spirit would have us uh, focus on through the account of John. And I'd like us to do that in two parts. Uh, first, by uh, taking notice of something very specific, even before these events unfold. Uh, something that we find for the first time here, which is the emphasis now, uh, we see it in the first verse, of significance being attached to the first day of the week. I want us to stop and think about that significance. And so we begin by looking at, you could call it, the, the new dawn of the first day. We'll think about that reality and that significance. And then after that, we will secondly walk through the events of these ten verses and notice the slow, progressive dawning of realization that we're seeing happen. I mean, one piece at a time on the part of these disciples of Christ. First, let's begin by talking about the newness that we're seeing in the morning of John chapter 20. It is now Sunday morning. Uh, Jesus died by our count two days ago, by their count three days ago. Their count goes like this. He died Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. So that's day one. He is dead on that day. As a second day begins at sundown Friday, so there's a day two that has begun. It goes through the night, through, um, through Saturday, and then day three begins at sundown on Saturday. And that's the day that is now dawning in verse one here, the first day of the week. And it's, it's interesting 
for us to notice how John chooses to name this, given Christ's prediction from back in chapter 2 that he would rise on the third day. In three days, he would rebuild this temple. Uh, given that, given all of the emphasis on the third day, think of the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the whale for three days. Uh, it's interesting that John does not describe this day as the third day after the resurrection, uh, after the crucifixion. He describes it as the first day of the week. And in fact, none of the Gospels do the other. They all make the deliberate step of calling this the first day of the week. And the reason that that matters is that from the very beginning, the day of Christ's resurrection permanently, immediately and permanently shaped the pattern of Christian worship from that moment forward. For the first time, the focal point of the week for God's people wasn't on the seventh day. Rather, it was on what has been called the eighth day. The, the work of redemption was complete at the cross. The rest that God had pointed us to and promised was earned. And Christians now looked not to the seventh day, but to the eighth day, that is to the first day of the week. A look that is established by Christ's resurrection. And we call that the Lord's Day. That's why we're gathered here right now at this moment, because we are gathering on the Lord's Day for worship. Already by John's time, that was what Christians were calling this day of the week. He calls it that in Revelation 1.10. He speaks of the Lord's Day. And from the earliest descriptions of the gathered church, the pattern noticeably shifts from Saturday to Sunday, to the Lord's Day. We read in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. And he goes on to describe. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul specifies the first day of the week as the opportune time for believers to set some money aside to be stored up as a gift to the Jerusalem church when Paul arrives there. This is the immediate pattern of God's people as they gather to worship together. A new day has dawned. And we call it the Lord's Day. Interestingly, this is, this is something to, to, to take note of. Even for Jewish Christians in the first generation, when the church was predominantly Jewish, we know that Jewish Christians continued to observe the Sabbath in accord with the Mosaic Law. They continued to meet on Saturdays as they were commanded in that covenant. And then additionally, they kept this gathering on the Lord's Day as a very deliberate and separate event uh, of worship. And so this is just a good opportunity for us to notice, as we now hear John mention, after Christ's resurrection, significance on the first day of the week. It's a good chance for us to remember how far back our practice of Sunday corporate worship goes, and why, what it's tied to in the resurrection. It's a reminder to us there is a great deal of weight behind the practices of the church, isn't it? There's a great deal of weight behind what we do. And I don't know if you're like me, but for me, it is encouraging to remember and to notice the ways in which I, the ways in which we are simply the latest generation alive to walk in the same patterns and footsteps of 2,000 years of Christian practice. That is a precious thing. 
It humbles me. It, re it reminds me that I am not the first, that I am a part of God's faithful plan to preserve and grow his people. It's a precious thing, and it's not one to take lightly. And so we just notice that the events that we're seeing this morning are very deliberately given to us as the, the inauguration of the significance of this first day of the week. Something big is happening here in what we witness. So now with that in mind, let's begin to just walk through the events. Let's experience it one step at a time as it's given to us. The first step that we find of a dawning realization that something has happened uh, is Mary Magdalene's discovery of a tomb disturbance. Look again at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Notice what she has seen and what she has not seen. This is one small step here. It is still dark at this point. She cannot see much. She certainly can't see inside the dark tomb from where she has just gotten close enough to notice that the stone has been rolled away. She gets close enough to recognize that, and at that realization, she fears the worst, and she turns and runs to tell the disciples. Now, this is one of those places we were talking about at the beginning. We know that there were other women present there with her, and it seems that she then ran back while the other women remained, and in fact, went into the tomb and saw things that she did not see. And that's fine. It's, it's Mary Magdalene that John is asking us to focus on, and hers is the first realization that we find here. It's that the tomb has been disturbed somehow, so that the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. That's all that she actually comes to perceive. It's not until John himself enters the picture that we get the second progression of discovery, of realization. It comes to us from John himself. Verses 2 to 5. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. We've learned who that is, haven't we? That's John. We're not surprised to see the two of them again spoken of together. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. This is such a detailed account given to us, isn't it? She goes to tell the disciples, and we can tell in what she tells them that she is fearing the worst. She fears that this disturbance was for a malicious purpose in order to steal the body. Remember what we saw last week, the Jews would not have liked that Jesus was buried in a private tomb. It's not what was supposed to happen in their eyes. They perceived him as a criminal, and his was a criminal's death. And you have a grave for those people. It's the common criminal's grave that you're just buried in with everyone else. So it's not unreasonable for her to fear that someone might have wanted to move the body. But of course, we know that in actuality, she's saying more than she actually knows to be true, isn't she? They have, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. She's terrified, and her 
conclusions are limited because of her limited realization. Now that gets Peter and John moving. It's, I personally find it a bit comical to hear the description as they break out and run. You can, see, you can see their intensity in that they don't even prioritize staying together. They're just going as fast as they can, and John is maybe faster than Peter. Uh, the events also, I think, highlight the differences of personality between them. Because John arrives and he hesitates, where Peter will not hesitate at all. Peter arrives and goes right in to the tomb. But John doesn't. John is the next step in our realizations that we're being told about. And when he arrives, he finds that the burial cloths are still in the tomb. He can see in, and that's what he sees. So what he immediately understands that Mary did not, is that some, someone has separated the cloths from the, the body. It is a thoroughly confusing thing to see there in the tomb. Who would do this? Who would put themselves in such danger, violating Roman law, risking it with Roman officials by breaking into the tomb, either to desecrate the body and the burial site or to take the body? Who would do that and then stop and begin the painstaking process of removing the burial cloths. You remember how much substance was used to pack those things? That stuff dries. That's not easily removed. It's a very strange thing to see. Who would take the time? The sight that John has as he's just looking in through the open doorway is completely confusing. And John goes no further. He waits for Peter to get there. In verses 6 and 7, Peter arrives. We read, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So now, the realization is expanding further. Now the whole tomb has been investigated, and it is confirmed, the body is not there. The tomb is empty of the body. What John emphasizes here that I think we need to notice is that the tomb is found to be in an orderly state. You have the cloth, the body cloth lying there. It seems to be in the place that it would have, have uh, been expected. And, but then you have the face cloth, verse 7, that had been folded up or rolled up neatly and set separate from the body wrap. Can you tell in the scene that John is describing to us that the whole presentation of it is what is so shocking to them? The sheer organization of the room. The cloths in their own place. Uh, orderliness. This is what is emphasized. And when verse 8 comes... And John now joins Peter in the tomb itself. That's what he sees. The emphasis is all on John seeing that same sight. End of verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloth lying there, the face cloth that had been on his head, not lying with the cloth, but folded in a place by itself. That's what Peter saw. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw. And then what? He sees this scene, and it says, he saw and believed. It's difficult to be sure. There's some speculation about whether 
that's intending to separate him from Peter? Did, did John believe in a sense that Peter yet did not? Or is this a statement about both of them? Uh, John, John also then saw and believed. It doesn't really make, make it very clear to us in the way that it's written. But what we need to notice here and spend some time thinking about is this belief that is, uh, that is recounted to us. The belief that results from this sight of an empty and orderly tomb. Notice several things about this belief. Notice, first of all, that it is clearly given to us as a limited realization. Whatever it is that they have seen and concluded that he's calling belief, it's limited. Verse 9 will tell us that, that there is, there is something of a lack of understanding that is accompanying this. But as John is writing this about himself, you can tell he is recording for us a profound realization that he had in that moment. He saw and believed. This is not a statement that says to us that John did not trust in Christ savingly until that moment, or that he never believed the things that Jesus taught until that moment. This is nothing like that at all. We have been told several times already that the group of the disciples, including John, had put their faith savingly in Christ and safely belonged to him. You can look back at John 6, 69, 16:27, 17:8, from the mouth of Christ himself to see that clearly. <clears throat> that is not the point here in terms of what's happening in John in this moment. The point here is that on seeing the tomb as it was, John immediately recognizes something that Mary did not understand as she came out panicked to tell them. John recognizes from the scene itself that whatever this is that's going on here, this is something that accords with the divine plan for Christ's glory. This is something of God that's happening. Listen to how one man, Herman Ritterboss, explained this. He's pointing to the form of the uh, verb believe there. And, and fleshing some things out, but at one point he says this. He says, the form of the verb indicates the breakthrough of a new beginning. Unlike Mary, who from the removal of the stone and the open tomb could only conclude that people had taken Jesus away. In the beloved disciple, at sight of all this, a sense arose that something else must have happened with Jesus' body. That another hand, God's hand, had been at work here. With this one sober statement, the evangelist leaves the matter. He does not define this faith. It was a new certainty that took hold of this disciple while understanding was still lacking. And that's very important. Let me say that again. He said, it was a new certainty that took hold of this disciple while understanding was still lacking. It's what makes me suspect that when John recounts this belief that we should hear him describing both himself and Peter. Because Luke 24, 12 speaks about Peter after this and says that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. This is speculation, but that means he didn't leave there and run to the criminal's grave and see if there was a fresh part or begin an investigation to find the body. At the sight of this, he goes back to his house marveling. It tells us something about something in their state of mind there. Now, again, notice so far what we have, the steps of realization here. There was the 
bare realization of tomb disturbance in verse 1. Then there was John's realization, you could say, of corpse disturbance of some sort, the body, a disturbance of the body. And then Peter confirmed the realization of the disappearance of the body in verses 6 and 7. And then in verse 8, we hear of John's realization that what had happened here was not malicious, but miraculous. Whatever this is, it is not a malicious thing I'm seeing. It's something miraculous. It's something to marvel at and wonder, what is God doing here? Verse 10 tells us that at that point, the disciples went back to their homes. And that's it. It can feel like a strange place for them to be left because of what verse 9 says about them. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And you might say, wait, but I thought it just said that they believed. And you're right about that. What John is telling us is that they are then in a moment when they recognize that God is at work here with Jesus, but they're not coming to that conclusion because they have figured out how these events fit in God's revelation. It is not their knowledge of the scriptures that has led them to this conclusion. But it is a genuine display of faith, isn't it? So this is a display, what verse 9 gives to us here, of faith without full understanding. Faith that is seeking understanding. And that is willing to, you can tell from the way they go to their home, Faith that is without understanding, seeking understanding, and willing to wait expectantly. Even as it confidently believes that there is an explanation and that God is at work. I would look at that and I would say to you, my friends, this is a good thing that we are seeing here in that moment for them in redemptive history. That's a noble thing in spite of the fact that it is a thing coming out of a lack of understanding. And in other places, Jesus is going to make clear that there was, there, there was revelation provided that could have led to that understanding. But let's consider a couple of questions here about verse 9. Uh, the first question is this, what is it that they are not yet understanding? Look again at what's said, uh, and let's read verse 9 together with verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For, as of yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. One of the obstacles to us might be his use of the word for there to start off verse 9. When I read it, my brain expects the word but. He saw and believed, but as of yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must, die, must rise from the dead. That would flow, I could track with that. Why for? How does that connect these two things together? And it, it, that is what it says. The conjunction that he uses here cannot be translated in a but kind of adversive way. So what is the idea that John is telling us here? I think it's this. I think it's that up until they saw this scene, they were not thinking that his death and burial represented some sort of a positive step in God's plan and use of Jesus. They were in despair. It was when he saw this, when he saw the scene of the empty and orderly tomb, that he then believed 
that is, believed that some good end was in the midst of being accomplished, even if he didn't yet understand what it was. Verse 9 is saying that the confusion for him, or for them, had laid in the fact that they had not yet understood the aiming point of the Old Testament scriptures. There are two things, I think, that should be in our minds as we're hearing John's statement there. One is a general reality. They didn't yet understand the scripture's picture in general of how the cross would represent the victory of God on the accomplishing of redemption. You think of all the Old Testament scriptures that John has been quoting in this gospel. This was to fulfill the scripture. This was to fulfill the scripture. What we're finding here is that at this moment, in John 20, verse 8, in John 20, verse 9, he did not yet recognize those connections while the events are unfolding in front of him. In fact, what it's going to take to understand these miraculous events is what it always takes to fully understand God's works. It's going to take what we call special revelation. God is going to have to interpret for them to explain to them what it is that he has done and the significance of it. And in fact, that's what we see Jesus doing after he is raised. Jesus is busy on this day. He is busy. Uh, For instance, look over with me to the account in Luke chapter 24. I ask you to turn there because I'm going to read a, a healthy piece of this chapter. Luke 24, let's, let's look at verses 13 to 27. And when it says that very day, it means the very day that we're studying here in John 20. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. These guys go and find the eleven after this encounter and are telling them about this. And as they're talking about it, 
suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. Look at what he says to the eleven, down at verse 44 of that passage in Luke. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Why is Jesus needing to explain this to all of them? What do they not yet understand in verse 9 of John chapter 20? The general answer is, the whole thing! They've seen all the pieces, but they haven't yet seen how they fit together in one perfect and ordained plan. The, the overarching unifying plan that culminated at the cross required for them, after it was finished, explanation from God, instruction. They did not yet understand these things. That's true at that general level. However, there's a second thing to notice, given what John says. You can come back to John 20, verse 9. The, the second thing is a more specific thing pertaining to the resurrection itself. John writes, As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That he must John says in particular here that while they believed that something divine was at work, they did not believe that because they had seen and reasoned from the scriptures that this was going to happen and indeed that it must happen. They didn't believe because they understood the necessity of a resurrection. Incidentally, it presents us this morning with a good exercise for ourselves. Do we understand the resurrection? The necessity of a resurrection? Could we, under, could we say that we understand why he must rise from the dead? The disciples didn't understand it just then, but my friends, they sure did by the time they're pinning the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They understood the necessity very quickly as Christ revealed things to them, as they searched the scriptures and saw what he was showing them. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5, Paul includes, uh, when he's describing what was delivered to him as of first importance, he includes Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. And Romans 4, 25 describes Christ as the one, quote, who was delivered up, listen to this language, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He ties Jesus rising from the dead to our very justification. And the reason that they do this is because of the reality of our union with Christ in both his death and his life. The reality and utter necessity of our union with him in these things. Those are two, they're not, they're not disconnected, but they're two things. My union with him in his death and my union with him in his risen, resurrected life. 
My union with him in his death means that the payment for the wages of my sin has been paid. I was in him in his death. Sins have been covered and atoned for. But my possession of true eternal life, that depends on my union with him in his life. Let me share some words from two different men at two different periods of time. But both of them I found very helpful. One is J.C. Ryle, and the other is John Calvin. Ryle wrote this. He said, it, Christ's rising from the dead, it was necessary for the accomplishment of man's redemption and for the completion of the work which Jesus came to do as our substitute and representative. Listen to this. The second Adam must die and rise again in order to win back what the first Adam lost. Calvin speaks of it a bit differently, but to the same end. He said, It would not have been sufficient for Christ to expose himself to the wrath and judgment of God and undergo the curse, and having been received into the glory of heaven, reconciled God to us by his intercession. The power of justification, therefore, which overcame death, is ascribed to his resurrection. Not because... So let me start that sentence again. Let's start fresh there. The... The power of justification, which overcame death, is ascribed to his resurrection, not because the sacrifice of the cross, by which we are reconciled to God, has in no way contributed toward our justification, but rather because the perfection of this grace is revealed more clearly in his new life. This is why his rising and our justification are tied together in Scripture, because of the implications of that Right, that, that raising to, to new life. What the disciples did not yet understand is precisely what has become utterly central to us in the Christian life. Both our utter neediness for and the complete victory we have in our union with Christ. We were just in Romans 4. Listen to Paul's point in Romans 6. And hear it in the context of what we're discussing. Hear this in the context of how important it is to you directly, the fact that Christ rose bodily from the grave. Here's what he says, Romans 6, beginning of verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we all will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, which implies, doesn't it, that as he was dead, there was a dominion being exercised over him in a sense. And death must not have dominion over him, and so he must rise. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice in the context that that is not simply talking about spiritual life. That is talking about fullness of life, which includes resurrection life. I'll repeat verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is a reality that belongs to us. It's a reality that is ours in that already and not yet fashion. Our current possession of true life and believers in this room, you have, who you have put your trust on his 
sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death in your place and have drawn near to him by faith that was given to you as a gift, you possess a true life now. Our current possession of that life enables our fight against sin. And although we continue to wrestle with the flesh and we continue to stumble in many ways, because of this, we battle with confidence. Because we know that what is ours now in part will one day be ours in full. And we know that with certainty. Because we have been brought into union with Christ and he has conquered death in every way. And the mourning and the empty tomb are this significant piece that maybe we don't think about quite enough sometimes. The implications for God's people that our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, rose from the grave and exited that tomb, never to die again. Now let's notice some things here this morning about what we have seen as we're closing. Let's just make two observations from what we've seen here. One thing that we see here is that along the path of teaching us and sanctifying us, Christ is willing to leave us in temporary times of confusion and uncertainty. We will live through times, sometimes of great confusion and uncertainty. There will be times where we will be left to believe him, even though we do not fully understand something. Those moments are a part of God's means and his perfect timing for our good and our sanctification. Those moments do serve good purposes for us. And it's not hard to even imagine them. Think of the ways that those seasons of life lead us to trust him above our own understanding. Lead us to evaluate whether the one really on the throne in my thought life is me or is him. Those moments cause me to see behind the curtain. Are there places in my life where I remain enthroned and my judgment will be the judgment that determines? Or do I believe that there are places where I do not understand and yet God's word is faithful and true and I will believe it even as I seek further understanding and I wait for him? The throne of judgment in our thought lives is his and not ours. And those moments give us the opportunity to prove that to ourselves. It is good to notice then that John and Peter here are not in a moment of condemnation as they believe while lacking understanding. There will be those times for all of us and they can be very useful in God's hands. It's one thing that we do well to notice here and to tuck away into our pocket. Notice something else as well, secondly. And I hope it's easy to see the way that these two are pieces of a puzzle that must fit together. Notice that John writes about this time in his own life. What must that have been like? He's looking back on these events that he went through and he's recording them for us. And he's writing here about a time in his own life when he believed and yet did not understand this crucial reality about our life in union with, with Christ. But he, he writes about it as one who was ignorant because there was a time in his life in which the Lord had not explained it to him. And my question is for us then. 
it sort of forces this question upon us. What excuse remains for us? As we live with gaps in our understanding of something so crucial to the teaching of the New Testament. What I mean is this. This may be the sort of passage that can serve well in God's hands as a gentle rebuke, maybe a nudge forward in love. Sometimes God nudges in love. Maybe sometimes he pushes a little bit harder. Maybe this is Maybe this morning is a gentle, loving nudge forward in terms of our diligence and a reminder to us to remain diligent about being a people of the book. This is what we are. We are a people who live and die by the revelation that God has given us in his word. And as such, we need to be a people who are steadily growing, steadily walking forward in our understanding of God's revealed plan. We are a people with a great number of tasks and responsibilities and spheres of service and work and life and priorities to go along with all of those. We must be a people whose priorities and life goals, if you will, do include things like, I want to be growing in my understanding of Scripture to the day that the Lord calls me home. You may remember it was in Hebrews chapter 5 that after the writer taught about Christ's work for us as our high priest uh, and how he brought salvation to all of those who obey him. After writing those things, the next thing he does is he, in love, criticizes his readers. Hebrews 5, starting at verse 11, he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And I'm thoroughly convinced that when he speaks there of distinguishing good from evil, he's not simply talking about moral situations. He's talking about the ability to discern what is true and good compared to what is not true and false. And then he says in verse 6, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What a strange turn of phrase there. And one to be careful about. Is he saying, go ahead and get the gospel down and become a believer and then Toss that aside and move on to more important things. Obviously, that's not at all what he's saying, is he? When he speaks of leaving the elementary doctrine of Christ and going on to maturity. He's talking about there should be stages in your life where you are finished laying the foundation. And it's time to build upon that foundation. It's time to work, to grow in our sense, our awareness that leads us to be able to distinguish good from evil. That leads us to be discerning and skilled in the word of righteousness. This is the kind of call that he's giving to his readers. And it's in this context of seeing John and Peter in a moment of lacking understanding and yet believing, we just need to notice they went on to pursue that understanding. So this is an opportunity to be called for us, and we all need it from time to time, don't we? To be called to renew our determination, to be a people who are steadily seeking further understanding of what God has revealed to us in his word. 
I've heard it said often here, we know it well, I hope, that this is a book with such depth that we will study the same book for our entire life and continue to plunder its riches and find truth and depth and application that I had not seen before. Such is the depth of his word and such is the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in my life that I will expect to read this until I die and to continue to grow and be blessed and be humbled by it. And so let us renew that determination in the places where we have let the normal scope of life dull them. This can affect our own personal habits. It can affect our habits of what we do during the Sunday morning sermon, uh, our thoughts about that men's or women's Bible study opportunity, the yearly goals I might set at the start of a new year. Uh, I'm just giving some examples. This is not some call to a legalistic making of lists. It is simply a needed nudge forward by the testimony of Scripture to hear John point out an ignorance he had that the Lord then removed from him by revealing his word and explaining it to him. In these ways, we follow after the footsteps of the disciples, the apostles, who were humbled and yet were called to follow after Christ, taking up his cross after him. And by God's grace, we will do the same in our own generation. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that our Redeemer, our Savior, our King did not remain in the tomb. We thank you for the sheer wonder of it, the display that it is of his power and his righteousness. But we also thank you for interpreting it for us. And as we live now with the blessed gift of your complete revelation to mankind, as we live with such incredible access that we have to your word, we ask you, Lord, to spur us on and to bless our efforts as we seek to grow steadily, slowly, trusting ourselves to your timing in our knowledge of your word. Bless and protect us, Father, by it as you always have and always will for your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.